Hello and welcome to the Memory Chapel podcast. Memory Chapel is a small, rural, non-denominational Christian church located on Banceville Road in 84, Pennsylvania. On this podcast, we feature an edited version of our Sunday morning worship service at the chapel and the Bible teaching of Pastor David All. Thanks for joining us. And now, let's get to the worship. Um, good morning. Welcome in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to see you here today. Our Father, we give thanks that we can gather together in your name to worship you because you are worthy of worship and praise. We thank you that through your Son, Jesus, we can draw near to you and enjoy the fellowship of your Spirit, which you've freely given to all who call upon your name. Thank you, Father, for these gifts. Bless our time together. May our worship in spirit and in truth be pleasing to you today. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. Our call to worship this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 3 through 11. Isaiah 40, 3 through 11. A voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear. And all humanity together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice was saying, cry out. Another said, what should I cry out? All humanity is grass and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of our God remains forever. Zion, herald of good news, got up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord comes with strength, and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him, and his reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. This is the word of the Lord. Those of us over the age of 30 will almost certainly remember exactly where we were and what we felt mid-morning, September 11, 2001. Those of us who were old enough on November 22, 1963, will certainly remember where we were and what we felt when we heard the terrible news that an American president had been slain in the streets of Dallas. There are even some among us who might be able to remember FDR's address to a joint session of Congress on December 8th, 1941, the day after Pearl Harbor attack. Tragic events like these scar the psyche of a nation. They are retained in the national consciousness for generations. I only mention them today because in our study of the kingdom of God, we must continue to lay the groundwork for a full understanding of what it meant to Jesus' disciples when he taught them to pray these words, Your kingdom come. 
In laying this groundwork, we find that it's time for us to talk about two national tragedies. Two national tragedies that redefined a nation. But let's begin by looking at the scripture that is our launching point this morning. Let's take a look at Luke 11, 1 through 4. Again, it's printed on the back side of your bulletin. Luke 11, 1 through 4. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Jesus said to them, Whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come. Give us to each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. Do not bring us into temptation. And this is the Lord's word for you. Last time we looked at a very important pivotal moment in the unfolding of the Lord's redemptive plan for his lost creatures. We looked at the Lord's promise to David, a promise to build him a house, like we mentioned, a dynasty of kings, a dynasty that would culminate in a descendant who would reign over God's people forever, a descendant who would build the house of the Lord, whose kingdom would have no end. We identified that promised descendant as Jesus, and we noted that the house of the Lord, the temple that Jesus promised to raise in three days, was the temple of his body. And we further noted that the apostles of our Lord identified that temple as the corporate body of Christ. That is, the assembly of all of those who, having placed their confident hope, their trust in Christ, have become part of Christ, members of his body. This assembly is being built together with living stones, not brick and mortar. The church is built of living stones, people. People have placed their faith and trust in Christ. And we are being built together as living stones to be a dwelling place for God in spirit. This is the house of the Lord that the Lord told David that David's descendant would build. That was the pivotal turning point that we looked at last week. And so now we have looked at two pivotal moments in the development of God's plan. Both of these moments involved the Lord making amazing promises to men who trusted him. The first, of course, was Abraham. We met him first time in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham believed the Lord. He believed the Lord's promise to make of him a great nation and that through his descendants, all of the families of humanity would be blessed. And second, of course, which we've just mentioned, was David who believed the Lord's promise to give him a descendant that would be an everlasting king over God's people, a king that would build the house of the Lord. It's important to note that both of these men believed the Lord and trusted in his promises. Don't miss that. That's crucial for us to understand. The Lord's promises are faithful and sure, but they must be believed and received if we are to benefit from them. Without faith, that is, without confident trust and faithfulness, it's impossible to please God. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it. That is, he reckoned it. He wrote it down in his ledger book as righteousness. And the same will be true for us. If we take the Lord at his word, 
and place our faithful, confident trust in Him and His promises, He will count us also to be righteous or right with Him. The first king of Israel, Saul, having persistently disobeyed the Lord, was ultimately rejected by God. The Lord instead chose a man after his own heart, taking David from the sheepfold to be the shepherd of his people. And he made an amazing promise to David to build him a house, a dynasty of kings, and he foretold of a distant descendant who would build the house for the Lord and reign forever over an everlasting kingdom. But what happened next? That's where we are today. Under the rule of David, and then after him, David's son Solomon, the kingdom secured its borders, pushed its boundaries, and prospered fantastically. However, after Solomon's reign, at the ascension of Solomon's son, the heir to the throne, Rehoboam, there were rumblings of division in the land. When Rehoboam issued a heavy-handed response to these rumblings, it split the nation. The kingdom was split. Ten tribes broke away and established their own kingdom. This breakaway from the house of David kingdom is referred to in the Old Testament by various names. As you read through the scriptures, you'll find it referred to as Israel, Samaria, Ephraim, sometimes even Joseph. The scriptures tell us that even this was part of God's plan and that the Lord had even appointed the very first king of this breakaway nation, a man named Jeroboam. If that doesn't get confusing, tell me what will, because in the south, the southern king of Judah, you had the son of Solomon. His name was Rehoboam. But in the north, the ten tribes that broke away, you had Jeroboam. Hmm. Jeroboam and Rehoboam. From the very beginning of this breakaway nation of Israel, it was plagued with kings who did evil and led the people into idolatry and every sort of rebellion against the Lord. Even the very first king who was appointed by the Lord, Jeroboam, he rebelled against the Lord who had raised him to his position as king over Israel, and he immediately led the people into idolatry and false worship. Many kings after Jeroboam did just as bad and even worse. Within just a couple hundred years, having ignored and rejected many repeated warnings issued by the prophets of the Lord, the Lord ultimately brought judgment to this nation. The Lord handed this kingdom over to be conquered and overrun by the armies of the mighty Assyrian Empire. This happened over a stretch of about 20 years. It culminated with the siege and destruction of the capital city of Samaria in the year 722 B.C. We're talking 700 years before the time of Christ. 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The capital city of Samaria, the capital of that northern kingdom of Israel, was destroyed by the Assyrians. And the Assyrian military had a means of subjugating their peoples. They had a repopulation strategy that they used. Uh, What they would do is they would take the population of this conquered region and transport them in chains to another region that they had conquered. And then they'd bring people from that region over there that they conquered and bring them back over here. They mixed everyone up so that no one had any ties to a homeland. 
That's how the Assyrians maintained dominance over the conquered territories that they had waged war against. And that's what happened to Israel. They relocated the population of this northern kingdom of Israel to other Assyrian-controlled territories, and they scattered God's people throughout the ancient world. Foreigners were brought into the conquered land of Israel to resettle it. Now, here's a little side note. Keep in mind for your reading of the New Testament. It was the descendants of these foreigners that the Assyrians brought into Israel 700 years before the time of Christ. Their descendants are the Samaritans that you read about in the New Testament. You remember how Jews, we read in the New Testament, Jews didn't like the Samaritans. They would travel all the way around it because they didn't want to go through there. That's because they were considered to be foreigners. The judgment of the Lord against his wicked and rebellious people was a nation-ending catastrophe. It all took place seven centuries before Christ. But now we have to go back to Rehoboam, Solomon's descendant, back to the time of that initial split just after the reign of David's son Solomon. Two tribes remained loyal to Rehoboam, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Together they were known as the kingdom of Judah. This was the southern kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. This nation was known for a number of good and godly kings that tried, like David, to be faithful to the Lord, but it also had a large number of wicked kings throughout its history. The Lord was very patient with Judah on account of his promises to David, but in the end, Judah ended up doing even more wickedly than the northern kingdom of Israel had done. They rejected the Lord. They abandoned his word. They abandoned his worship. They bowed down to idols. They even moved idols, obscene idols, into the temple, the house of the Lord, and worshiped them there. And if that wasn't enough, they went so far as to offer their own children, their sons and daughters, as burnt human sacrifices to the idols that they worshiped. Despite repeated warnings through his prophets, the Lord eventually decreed certain impending judgment and doom upon this rebellious nation. Because of their evil, the Lord executed judgment upon them in 586 B.C., you know, roughly 150 years after the northern kingdom of Israel had been destroyed by the Assyrians. 150 years later, Judah falls, 586 B.C., when the armies of the Babylonian Empire having already brought an end to the kingdom of the Jews by taking their king captive, along with all of the educated elites and white-collar professionals, they returned in 586 when the city rebelled, the city of Jerusalem rebelled against them. They returned to level the city completely. They destroyed the temple of the Lord. And they took everyone captive, except for the poorest of the poor. They left the poorest behind to work the land. Those adults who went into captivity did so with little hope of ever having a possibility to return. And the reason was, the prophet who had prophesied the impending doom and destruction, the prophet Jeremiah, had made a very specific prophecy concerning this captivity. It would not be permanent. It would have an end date. Seventy years were decreed. Seventy years, and the Lord would return a remnant of his people back to the land. But think of it, if you were an adult above the age of 25 or 30, you had very little hope of coming back. This captivity would be for 70 years. 
What kind of future would there be for those who came back, though? Those who went into exile no longer had a national homeland. They had been scattered throughout the ancient world. What had become of the Lord's inheritance? The portion that he had kept for himself to be under his own direct management. What of his promises to David regarding a descendant who would reign forever? The line of David, his house, his dynasty, it had been shattered. The last ruling king of Judah, Zedekiah, had staged an unsuccessful rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and that resulted in the total destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple of the Lord. Zedekiah was captured and blinded after being forced to witness the murder of his family, and then he was taken away in chains. It appears that was the end of the line. What of the Lord's promises to David? Where was the kingdom of God? Where was the house of the Lord? Where was the descendant of David who would reign forever? Where was the Lord's portion, Israel, to whom had belonged the glory and the promises? Two national tragedies of such magnitude that the the consciousness, the psyche of that people was forever altered. They had fallen under the judgment of God. Seventy long years would pass. Isaiah the prophet, who we read from earlier in our call to worship, he lived a long time before the Babylonian captivity. He even lived before the earlier Assyrian captivity of the northern nation, but he prophesied concerning it. Isaiah 39, verses 5 through 7 read, Hear the word of the Lord of armies. Look, the days are coming when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until today will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your descendants who come from you, whom you father, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Here and in many other places, Isaiah spoke regarding the judgment that would befall Judah, but he also spoke of a time after it when the Lord would comfort his people. The time for wrath, for their rebellion and sin would be over. A time for restoration would begin. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Likewise, the prophet Ezekiel prophesied concerning a time of restoration for the people of God. Ezekiel had been taken captive in one of the early deportations of the Babylonian captivity. He was taken captive, and the city of Jerusalem had not yet been destroyed. That would come later, but he prophesied regarding it. He prophesied regarding the total destruction-level judgment that was about to fall upon the rebellious nation, but he made his prophecies from a foreign land where he had been taken captive. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 16 through 19 read, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, while the house of Israel lived in their land, They defiled it with their conduct and actions. Their behavior before me was impure. So I poured out my wrath on them because of the blood they had shed on the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. 
I scattered them among the nations, and they were scattered among the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and actions. But he also looked ahead to a time when the Lord would regather all of his people and bring them back into Israel. Isaiah 36, beginning in verse 24. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will summon the grain and make it plentiful. I will not bring famine on you. I will also make the fruit of the trees and the produce of the field plentiful, so that you will no longer experience reproach among the nations on account of famine. Dropping down to verse 33. This is what the Lord God says. On the day I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were once ruined, desolate and demolished, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that remain around you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was demolished and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. This is what the Lord God says. I will respond to the house of Israel and do this for them. I will multiply them in number like a flock. So the ruined cities will be filled with a flock of people, just as Jerusalem is filled with a flock of sheep for sacrifice during its appointed festivals. Then they will know that I am the Lord. The rebellious nation was going to be severely judged for her sins, but a remnant would return to the land and enjoy the blessing of the Lord as God continued to work out his promises. But the Lord showed Ezekiel even more than that. And this is where it gets really interesting. You have to turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. This is a famous passage known as the vision of the valley of dry bones. Perhaps you're familiar with this one. We're going to read it. It's a lengthy passage, but this is critical to understand in, in our understanding of God's plan. Ezekiel chapter 37, the hand of the Lord was on me. He brought me out by his spirit and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were a great many of them on the surface of the valley. They were very dry. Then he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I replied, Lord God, only you know. He said to me, Prophesy concerning these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says to these bones. I will cause breath to enter you and you will live. I will put tendons on you, make flesh grow on you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you so that you come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded, and while I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone, click, click, clack, clack. As I looked, tendons appeared on them, flesh grew and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. He said to me, prophesy to the breath. 
prophesy, son of man, say to it, this is what the Lord God says, breath, come from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. The breath entered them and they came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, here is the key verse to the entire chapter. Don't miss this. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. The whole house of Israel. Keep that in your thinking. Look how they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says. Another key passage. I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them, my people, and lead you into the land of Israel. You will know that I am the Lord, my people, when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. This is the declaration of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a single stick and write on it. The Lord says, take a single stick and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. So write that on one stick, belonging to Judah, the house of Judah. Then take another stick and write on it, belonging to Joseph, that is the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, all the Israelites associated with him. Remember, the kingdom had been divided. You had Israel or Samaria or Ephraim in the north. You had Judah in the south. The Lord tells Ezekiel, one stick for Judah, one for Ephraim. And all the Israelites that belong to Judah, all the Israelites that belong to Ephraim. Oh, wait, those Israelites were lost long ago. 150 years earlier, Ezekiel might have said, those Israelites are gone. They were scattered. They're not even around anymore. The Lord says, take two sticks. Write that on each of them. And then... Join them together into a single stick so that they become so they become one stick in your hand. Okay, this is the object lesson that God is telling Ezekiel to show to the people. When your people ask you, won't you explain to us what you mean by these things? Tell them, this is what the Lord God says. I am going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and put them together with the stick of Judah, I will make them into a single stick so that they become one in my hand. When the sticks you have written on are in your hand and in full view of the people, tell them, this is what the Lord God says. I am going to take the Israelites out of the nations where they've gone. This is key passage. I will gather them from all around and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel, and one king will rule over all of them. They will no longer be two nations and will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will not defile themselves anymore with their idols, their abhorrent things, and all their transgressions. I will save them from all their apostasies by which they've sinned, and I will cleanse them. Another key passage here. Then they will be my people, and I will be their God. You've heard those words somewhere before. My servant David will be king over them. It, when it says, my servant David will be king, it's speaking about David's descendant. We know who that is. That's Jesus. And there will be one shepherd for all of them. We know who that is, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus. 
They will follow my ordinances and keep my statutes and obey them. They will live in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your ancestors lived. They will live in it forever and with their children and grandchildren. And my servant David, again, speaking of the descendant of David, Jesus, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be a permanent covenant with them. I will establish and multiply them and will set my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. Oh, that's key. I will be their God. They will be my people. When my sanctuary, that is my holy place where I dwell, is among them forever, the nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel. Take two sticks, Ezekiel. Hold them together in your hand to make one stick. That's what I'm going to do with the whole house of Israel. What are you talking about, God? The northern kingdom was lost a century and a half ago. Those people never came back. They've been scattered throughout all the world. Their descendants have intermarried with other peoples. That doesn't even exist anymore. God says, oh no, I'm going to bring the whole house of Israel back together. And they're going to have one king, the descendant of David, and it's going to be forever. And I'm going to make a new covenant, a new arrangement whereby people can draw near to me. That was a big passage. I know there was a lot there. Through Ezekiel, the Lord promised a total and complete regathering of the people of God. Not just the inhabitants of Judah that had been carried off by the Babylonians. Ezekiel is directed to look back to the long-lost captives of Ephraim, Israel, Samaria, that had been taken away and scattered by Assyria 150 years earlier. And not just the living descendants. The Lord speaks about a resurrection for his people. David, that is the long-promised descendant of David, would be ruling over them forever. A total regathering of Israel, both houses of Israel. A regathering, get this, that is associated with a resurrection and the giving of God's Spirit and a new everlasting covenant and the establishment of the sanctuary, that is the holy place of God's dwelling with His people and an eternally reigning king. Not two kingdoms, one kingdom of God. And then without tipping his hand too much, he reveals that there's a connection with the nations of humanity involved in this too. All of these associated events, does it give you a clue regarding what period of time the Lord was indicating for this regathering? It would be the time of Jesus and his sacrifice for our sins and his resurrection and the good news of reconciliation. Ezekiel was prophesying regarding the time of Jesus and the apostles and the gospel. That was the time of the regathering of the house of Israel. Seventy years had passed. Just as Jeremiah and Ezekiel had prophesied two generations before, the Lord began to bring his captive people from Judah out of captivity and to reintroduce them to their ancestral land. This remnant would rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Remember, this is all happening like 500 years before Christ. They would even rebuild the temple of the Lord. They would reinstitute the corporate worship of the living God. But there would be no king. And there would be no kingdom. 
they would be a vassal state controlled by foreign empires. But at least God's people would be back in the land again, right? All of God's people were home. No, not even close. Not all of the captives of Judah have returned, let alone all of the captives that have been scattered by the Assyrians in 722. A remnant returned to the land, but not all. Many did not return. Israel was scattered. The Lord's portion was flung far and wide throughout the ancient world. What about this regathering that Ezekiel talked about? What about the kingdom? When would it happen? When would it be a reality? These are the questions that generations of Jews asked from the time that the first remnant of the captives began to return right up until the very time of Jesus Christ. Even Jesus' disciples were asking it, and we can see them asking when we read through the Gospels. Following Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we'll be talking about next week, they were asking, when will these things be? They wanted to know, when will these things be? Even in the days after Jesus' resurrection, they persisted. They said, will you, Lord, at this time, restore the kingdom to Israel? If we could travel back in time to first century Israel, to walk amongst the people that Jesus and his disciples walked amongst and converse with them, we might find ourselves saying things like this. Hey, I know you guys are pretty worked up over being under Roman rule and all, but hey, at least the captivity is a thing of the past, right? And they would look at us and say, what in the world are you talking about? And would say, well, you know, the captivity thing that happened, that was really bad, but at least that's over, right? And they'd go, are you nuts? The captivity isn't over. And would say, but the captivity was... 70 years long, just like Jeremiah prophesied, and then your ancestors returned to the land by the hand of the Lord, and that happened like, oh, like 500 years ago, right? And they would reply, a remnant of our people, a remnant of our ancestors returned, but the regathering of all of Israel, including those that were scattered by the Assyrians 750 years ago, that has most certainly not happened yet. We're waiting for it, they would say. We're waiting for the regathering of Israel. We're waiting for the new covenant that's associated with it. We're waiting for the descendant of David who was promised to reign forever. We're waiting for the kingdom of God. We're waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. Waiting, 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 waiting. And that's when we would begin to realize that we have a lot to learn about what was involved in the two national disasters that shook a nation to its very core. All of the hopes, all of the expectations that were wrapped up in being an Israelite 2,000 years ago, when Jesus' disciples heard him teach them to pray by saying, Your kingdom come. All of that was wrapped up in it. They were looking for the regathering of all of Israel. And how would you even do that? That would be like sprinkling a few grains of sand on the beaches of the world, mixing it all up, and then saying, the Lord's going to bring those grains of sand back out of that. How will he do that? They had no clue. When will it happen? They were anxious. They were waiting. 
regarding all of these hopes and expectations of an entire nation, we will have more to say, including the prophesied time of their fulfillment. But we'll have to turn to another prophet of the exile, another prophet who prophesied during the captivity and spoke concerning the exact timing of the coming of Messiah, as well as the kingdoms of the nations that would rule over the Lord's portion until the restoration of the kingdom under the one true king. We will have to turn to Daniel to understand the anticipation that accompanied the arrival of the descendant of David, the arrival of Jesus. But we're going to have to speak on that next time. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to understand something of the expectations and anticipations that your people long ago felt and experienced in a very real way when they talked about the kingdom of God. Help us to understand so that we can appreciate what it is that you did when you regathered all of Israel, all of those who displayed faith like Abraham. And then help us to be even more thankful that you have included us in that. We have no heritage or stock with Israel, genetically speaking. We're Gentiles. We're of the nations. We were not part of your portion. But in Jesus, you included all on the basis of faith. And you've brought us into your Israel, the Israel of God. Thank you for regathering your people. Thank you being Lord of the living and the dead, bringing to yourself one people saved by faith. Thank you for your goodness and kindness to us, Lord. In the name of Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen. It seemed like an unsolvable riddle, an impossible problem. How would the house of Israel, which had been scattered far and wide long ago, how would that ever possibly be regathered. Kind of like if you took a salt shaker, opened it up, poured it on the sand, and mixed it all up. How would you ever get all the grains separated again? But there's a simple way to do that. Scoop it all up, put it in a container with some water, you dissolve the salt, get rid of the sand, and then you evaporate the water off, and you've got the salt again. And that's what the gospel did. God said, I'm not concerned about genetics and DNA. I'm going to regather my people on the basis of their simple trust and faith in me, just like Abraham trusted me. And I counted him righteous. I'm going to do the same thing for the house of Israel. I'm going to do the same thing for the nations too. And he's doing it still. If you've placed your faith and trust in him, you are a living, walking testimonial to the fact that God saves Israel. He saves people on the basis of faith. Praise Him for it. Be glad for it. We're included in it. His promises are amen. So be it. Yes to you. You don't have to worry about it. You're good with Him through Christ Jesus. May the grace and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all today, this week, and forever.
Thank you for having tuned in with us today. We hope you found the time in worship and the word to be encouraging, challenging, and strengthening. If so, we'd love to hear from you. We realize there are so many ways you could spend your time. We're glad you chose to spend it with us in worship and the word. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all today, this week, and forever.